Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have with us Mr. R.J. Burr. R.J. Burr is a third-generation producer of American oil. Born into the industry, Mr. Burr was on his first location before he could walk and has been fascinated by the production of oil his entire life. Within three months of graduating high school, Mr. Burr funded his first partnership and never looked back. R.J. is the Senior VP of Corporate Operations at Panex. With a main focus on the Gulf Coast, Mr. Burr's companies have raised and deployed over 300 million in upstream development and have partnered with some of the largest oil and gas companies, namely Shell, BP, and Marathon, to develop several million barrels in reserves. Today on this podcast, we'll be discussing American oil production and independent producers, also the history of the oil industry, American independent producers, and finally, the true state of the oil industry. So let's give Mr. Burr a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. So Mr. Burr, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning to you. How are you doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. And um, RJ, is what is the RJ for? Robert Jeffrey Rustin Burr. I have, right. uh, I have three older sisters, and when I came along, I think my dad named me after everybody in the family. And <laughs> funny thing is, so I, I came out, and, and my dad's first word was, heck, he's naked as a jaybird. And so they <laughs> called me jaybird for my first 10 years. And I, about 10 years old, I looked at him and said, okay, it's either Jay or it's Bird, one of the two, not both of them. And uh, at that point, they, they dropped the Bird part, and it was Jay. And then as I got in business, uh, you know, you have to put your first name on everything. And my dad's Robert, and so uh, we just shortened it up to R.J. Burr and uh, been doing it ever since. All right, cool. Yeah, I had the pleasure of talking to your father once. Yeah, he's a pretty pretty interesting character. Yeah, well, <laughs> hey, that, that's that, he, yes, he is. Let's, let's uh, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure you have some stories. He is one of, we, we went to a hockey game the other night and uh, had my two boys with us and uh, we're, we're driving down there from Bowling Green to Nashville and uh, we're going to the Predators game. And he started telling my boys stories about uh, when he was 18 and working as a, basically a, a truck driver for a refinery and how it was something very quickly he learned that was not his uh, line of expertise and he needed to find something else to do for a living. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I, I'll just leave the stories at there. But uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was an entertaining moment to. Well, heck, it goes back to everything. Know, know what you know, and know, but more importantly, know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. For you sure. know, for sure. He, he, is what was old, old Think and Grow Rich, the mastermind group. You know, old uh, Henry Ford was on the stand, and they asked him a question. And he said, "I don't know." They said, "What do you mean you don't know? You're you're Henry. How could you not know that?" He said, well, that's an engineering question. And if you'd have asked me when I'm sitting at my desk, I'd have hit box number 27 on my phone and I'd have got my engineer on the phone and I'd have yeah. given you the correct answer, right. you know? And, and so it's a, 
know what you know. More importantly, know what you don't know. And when you know what you don't know, then you can hire somebody who does know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, Robin, so that end, can you um, tell the audience a little bit about your background and how long you've been in the industry and along those lines? Well, I've, uh, I'm have i an oil and gas producer. I'm a domestic American oil and gas producer. That's what I've been doing. Uh, my dad, heck, he got involved in the business in 1973. Uh, I was on my first rig. I think at seven years old was when I first remember being on a rig. And uh, this is what I've always wanted to do. Uh, some people grow up watching their dads practice medicine or practice law. I watched my dad in the oil and gas business. And uh, as I got older, uh, graduated high school, once again, never wavered, knew exactly what I'm doing, funded my first deal three months out of high school, and uh, haven't looked yeah. back. Now, as, as you mature and you start understanding what, you know, it, it, a lot of times we get, uh, as young adults, we get going and really just the energy of what we're doing and the momentum carries us to success, but you really don't know how you got there. Uh, all of a sudden you look up and you're successful and you're like, whoa, hang on. You just had your head down and you tail up and you kept plowing. And all of a sudden there's a big field of corn growing around you. Well, as you get older, you start, and at least some people, at least I did, uh, I started analyzing, well, why did that work? And why did that not work? What was, what's the next step? What, what, what could we have done there that would have turned that into a success? And what did we do here that turned this into a success? And, and it's really, when you look at the talking heads on television, when you look at the so-called experts, when you look at college professors, I mean, it doesn't really matter who you look to when it comes to an expert class that are, that's giving you advice. The fact of the matter is, as humans, we make things much more complicated than they really are. And, you know, one plus one will always equal two. It'll never equal three. It'll never equal 1.5. And so if somebody comes to you trying to tell you that it does equal 1.5, they're wrong. There's absolutely no way that can happen. And so once you start understanding how things work and how really when you boil it back down to its root level, it's one plus one equals two, and it always will be. You know, you, you look, at the, look at the oil industry. The oil industry has been under assault for 50 years now. I mean, can you think of a time when, when oil didn't have a negative connotation around it? Right. And, and so when you think about it, I mean, I, I'm a movie buff. I, I love movies. And one of my favorites is The Usual Suspects. And one of my mm -hmm. favorite quotes in that movie is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And, and so I kind of I modify that when I look at the oil industry and I say, look, the greatest trick the environmentalist ever pulled was convincing the world that oil was bad. Because every society, not one, not every now and then. Every society's growth is tied to their energy, you know? And, and so it, as much as we want to get away from oil, heck, the free market handles everything. I, I, I love my truck. I love my diesel truck. If you brought me an electric car that did for me what my truck does, I'd have no problem switching it. If I had... No problem plugging in and charging. I mean, if, if all the economic benefits, if my life benefits were on a positive, I'd have no problem going to it. However, when you force people to do something, you're going to have resistance. You know, you look at, uh, oh, heck, the old saying. I love old sayings. There, there's a reason they're old saying. There, there's truth to them. 
And when you look at the old saying, nothing is for free. Well, there's a reason they're trying to get you to do certain things. And so you just have to be able to step back, forget the intentions. I love Milton Friedman. One, one, of, one of my favorite quotes from him is, don't judge things by their intentions. Judge them by their results. And so when you, when you look at, well, look at the last 10 years. In the last 10 years, it's specifically in the oil and gas industry, upstream development, which is basically going out and finding more oil. We were putting industry-wide about a trillion dollars, little over 900, to 900 billion to a trillion dollars is what we were investing to find more oil worldwide. Well, at that point in time, we were running about a 5 million barrel a day deficit from what we consume versus what we produce. Today, that deficit is at anywhere between 10 and 15 million barrels a day. That number is expected to be close to 70 million barrels by 2030. Well, if that's the case, the only way you avoid that simple math, if you're consuming 70 million barrels a day more than you produce, what does that tell you is going to happen to prices? And so now you look at, okay, what could change that? Okay, well, if we find more oil, all of a sudden, if there's more oil and we can produce more oil, that number is not going to be as high. So therefore, it's going to blunt it. Well, in 2014, we put right at a trillion. This year, we'll be lucky to have 300 billion invested in upstream development. And so we're consuming more oil than we're producing. We're not investing enough in upstream development to replace that oil. Well, those two factors alone paint a pretty clear picture on why oil prices are at $100 a barrel. Because oil prices being at $100 a barrel are pure proof of the third point. All of that changes if there's an alternative. If there's an alternative to replace oil with, everything I just told you is irrelevant because you would move to that. However, I don't see one. Knowing human nature to get us off of oil, which is we're all, we're all in the oil business, whether you want to be or not. We are all consumers of oil. If you live in the modern world, you're an oil man or an oil woman. Question is, are you strictly a consumer or are you a producer? Because in that world with us needing oil, if there was an alternative, all of a sudden that equation doesn't work. Well, what tells me that there's not an alternative is human nature. To do that, it's going to be something like the printing press type invention. I mean, it's going to be one of the greatest inventions in human history, the free, clean source of energy that gets us off of oil. Well, if somebody has made that, invest that invention, don't you think they'd be standing on top of the mountain yelling and telling everybody about it? I haven't heard anybody talking about it. Yeah, and RJ, to your point, if you, um, so I think a lot of people, they can understand that, yeah, we need oil to survive, but I don't think they have a full perspective of the importance. So can you kind of, um, can you talk about the history of the oil industry, like starting from oh. what the kerosene lamp and give Absolutely. people a little more perspective? Well, that, that was, we've been using oil for a long time. And it really, it's modern explosion. It, it's use in everyday mm -hmm. life really started in, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s is when we started cranking up and producing oil. Well, at that point in time, you're, the oil industry and the prices in the market were controlled by what they call the Seven Sisters. And it was basically your seven major oil companies. You can, you can track them to companies today, Exxon. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
mean, they, they were this, they called them the seven sisters. They manipulated the prices, good, bad, up, down. They did it for the government. They did it on their own account. They were basically the head of the oil world. Well, in 1960, OPEC was created. And OPEC was basically a conglomeration of oil producing countries. And their sole purpose was to basically blunt the power of the seven sisters. And for the last roughly 60 years, that's been the power structure in the oil and gas industry is you had OPEC controlled the price. And so that that's really where it was. Now, whether you like President Trump or not is really irrelevant to the story, because what he did by increasing American production to the levels that he, we were at, all of a sudden he took the power from OPEC. All of a sudden OPEC didn't have as much say on what a barrel of oil would cost. They didn't like that. And, and so that was the general structure. Now that now, that structure really doesn't define American production, because if, if you went out and talked to pretty much just grab the average American and said, hey, name me one American oil company, most of them are going to go straight to Exxon. Most of them are going are to go to one of your majors. Well, the fact that Exxon is based in Houston does not make Exxon an American company. They're an international company. I'm not mad at them. I'm not, heck, they're Exxon. I'm not sweating them. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. But their mm -hmm. first priority is not what's best for America. Mm -hmm. Their first priority is what's best for their stockholders. And so, therefore, when you look at that prism and then you look at the actual numbers, really over, what, 83% of your oil and 90% of your natural gas is produced by roughly 9,000 independent oil and gas companies in America. And those 9,000 companies average 12 employees or less. Wow. That's your true oil industry in America. And, and so when you look at everything that has happened over the last couple of years, yeah, it affects the majors, but not near as much as it affects the Ma and Pa, who is your basic oil and gas industry in America. And, and so that's just the general structure of, of what was happening. Now, over the last 20 years, Oil prices have averaged roughly $60 a barrel, give or take a little bit up and down, but roughly 60. Well, most of your oil companies were created or formed within that 20 year period. And so they've built their life around $60 oil. And so what we saw happening and what we were paying attention to is here about two years ago, we started building and putting a program together because we saw going back to that original structure, we saw Saudi Arabia, OPEC, and OPEC plus Russia, we saw them essentially what we looked at is a economic war with the shale oil producers in America. And what I mean by that is when we got our production levels up to where they were and took OPEC's power, they had to take that power back. Well, the economics of it basically state companies in the shale industry need roughly at least $50 per barrel to pay their bills. Hmm. Everything above 50 is where they're going to make their profit. So what we saw happening is we saw Russia and Saudi Arabia pushing those prices down by increasing their production. We were thinking they were going to shoot to get it to 45, maybe $40 a barrel and a direct attack on the shale industry. Because all of a sudden, if you need $50 a barrel to pay your bills and all of a sudden oil's at $40 a barrel, you're in trouble. And so that, that was the dynamics of what we saw. And so that's what we were gearing up for. We knew throughout this process that there would be some buying opportunities. There would be some oil and gas companies that just couldn't 
withstand that assault. And so that's really what we were gearing up for. And then all of a sudden, Corona came. And, and nobody could have predicted Corona. Nobody could have predicted what was going to happen. But in the oil patch, what Corona did, it essentially took that 18 to 24-month window, what we thought it would take, mm -hmm. and it crunched it down into 30 <clears throat> days. And all of a sudden, it put companies out of business overnight. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I can remember like it was yesterday. It was April 20th, 2020. I remember sitting at my desk, I'm watching Fox Business, and I see I'm seeing the prices go down. I got to 20 to 18. When they got to about $8 a barrel, it was about lunchtime. I'd had enough. I couldn't watch anymore. I said, okay, I'm getting out of here. And so I went to Arby's, went and got me a roast beef sandwich about a block down the road. <laughs> so I'm literally away from my desk, maybe 15 minutes. I turn around, come back. And as I'm walking back in my office, I look up at the TV and I see there's a 40. Like, oh, okay, it rebounded. We're good. Okay. Well, by the time I got to my desk and sat down, I, I kind of hit me. Hang on. There was a little line in front of that 40. And so at that moment when prices were at negative 40 a barrel, if anybody on the planet had the right to curl up in the fetal position in the corner and start crying and sucking their thumbs, it was us. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had, we had two partnerships at that moment that in their first distribution had paid the partners roughly 60 to 55 to 60% of their money with their tax benefits included in the first distribution. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was, a, and then all of a sudden the bottom fell out of the market. Well, at that moment in time, as bleak as it was, hindsight, looking back on it, I'm more proud of my family and my crew for that moment and how we reacted to it than anything we've ever done. Because at that moment, put yourself back. It was two years ago now. It was almost a little past two years ago. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every company on the planet pulled their sales in, battened down the hatches and basically got ready to ride out the storm. We just got to mm -hmm. make it through this. Well, at that moment, that was when we spread our wings. Because if you look at human history, if you look at American history, it's, it's the greatest story ever told. It tells you what's going to happen next if you look at it. Now, all you have to do is pay attention because history does repeat itself. And when you look at moments of economic crisis, in every case, there's always a group of people that come out of the other side looking like geniuses. And when you string their stories together, there's really two common factors that string all these people together. One, when the crisis happened, they had cash in hand. They were financially in a position where they could take advantage of it. Two, when the opportunity presented itself, they had what my dad calls the intestinal fortitude to push the chips in the middle of the table. And that's exactly what we did. When that moment happened, we kind of, we... Dusted ourselves off, stood up, had a meeting, me, my dad, uh, Chris, all, all the guys in the office, my brother, we sat down and said, hey, this is what we thought was going to happen anyway. The only thing we were off on was the trigger. But the result was the same. Now it's time to get going. And so we cranked up. And uh, in the last two years, we've made, oh, roughly 20 acquisitions. Uh, we purchased essentially two complete salt domes and have locked up. Oh, bottom side, we're looking at about 20 million barrels of oil. Top side, it could be in excess of 120 million barrels of oil that we've locked up. Uh, we've already started developing it. And we're, just, we're just getting started. We, we want to we own every salt dome across the Gulf Coast. That, that's our goal. Because when you look at it, 
there really hadn't been a major American oil and gas company built in a long time based on American production. I'm not talking about going somewhere else. I want, if you don't control your oil, you don't control your future. Yeah. I mean, it, they're, they're pretty much not, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I do have a bucket full of common sense. And, and when you sit down and start looking at, at countries and the definitions of countries, there are three things a country has to control. They have to control their food, their medicine, and their energy. If they don't control any one of those, they're at somebody else's mercy. And that's where we are right now. Doesn't matter whether you like it or don't like it. That, what we feel about it is irrelevant. The fact, of, the fact of the matter is we are at the mercy of other countries right now. And so somebody is going to come out and build a major American oil company producing American oil that is looking out for American interest before anybody else. I'm not saying we don't want to make money. That's the reason we're doing it. We're doing it to make money. However, in the same breath, he who controls the oil controls the future. And, and speaking Until to that they, point, I wanted to actually speaking to that point. So how, on a macro level or a macro scale, how does the um, situation in um, Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, how does that affect the market on a macro level? And how much of that, that um, uproar, uproar is about oil versus what we're hearing on the media? I mean, in the media. I, everybody's really guessing right now. I mean, you can, uh, yes, it's going to have some effect. I mean, when Russia cuts off Europe and gas, I mean, all the chaos is going to, the daily headlines are going to cause the prices to go up and down. But even if there was no war, if there was no conflict across the globe, the fundamentals don't change. We consume more than we produce, and we're not investing enough to produce more. That number is getting worse every day. And, and so the prices, so what, are they going to be $100 a barrel? Or let's say every war, and it's going to go down to 80 Doesn't really matter because the fundamentals are the fundamentals. There's nothing to replace oil with. And we're choking production off. And so when you have, you know, that's why I love oil. It gives you a true, it's about, well, I'll tell you a little story. I'm talking with some of my partners. And you remember a couple of years ago when uh, the silver crunch happened, when all of a sudden people realized there's more paper silver than there's actual silver. Well, my partners had a moment of crisis at that moment because most of my partners live out of three piles of money. Their first pile of money, that's their safe money. That's their family money. That's what they pay their bills on. That's what they live on. It's sacred. Nobody touches that. Well, their middle pile, that's the pile that they want to make sure they want it to grow. Don't get me wrong. They want it to get bigger. But more importantly, they want it when they come back years from now, they want it to be there. Maybe a little bit bigger. Their third pile is their growth money. Their, their growth pile is the one where they want to turn one to two, two to four, four to eight. That's what that's typically what they play with play with me is out of that third pile. Well, all of a sudden, when that silver crunch happened, they realized their safe pile, that middle pile, all of a sudden, those numbers were just as manipulated as everything else. And so when you're when you're faced with that crisis, all of a sudden they're looking at it going, whoa, 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 hang on. You mean to tell me there's more actual paper silver than there is silver? Well, then why do I own it? That mean, you know, and so they started having questions on their philosophy on what they wanted to do. And so I'm sitting down thinking about it one night, not sitting down, I'm actually laying in bed and it's about three o'clock in the morning and it hit me. And I'm one of those guys, when I start pulling on the thread of the sweater, I'm on un unravel the whole thing. And so I pop up out of bed and 
at that point in time, I really kind of started it as a joke, hoping that one of my partners would say, would answer and, and trump me. And so I started asking my question, other than food, oxygen, and water. Other than those three, name one product on the planet that's in more demand than oil. And after two years, nobody's been able to give me an answer. And so all of a sudden you look at it and you say, whoa, hang on. Well, why do you like oil so much? Well, because it gives you a true representation of what the price should be. And why I say that is you have half the population is pulling on it, wanting it to be free. The other half of the population is pulling on it, wanting it to be $500 a barrel. So you're going to get an equilibrium on what that is actual worth. If one guy tries to jack with you on the prices, you go next door and he's going to under you with me. And so you're going to find a relatively flat equilibrium on what the price value should be. And so now once you have that component in place and you realize, okay, that's where I want my partners to put their money. Now it's a matter of locking up those assets where you're not, where look, you're never going to eliminate all the risk in oil and gas. If anybody ever calls you and guarantees you something, they're lying to you. There, there are no guarantees. What you can do though, is reduce the risk by changing the type of wells you're drilling, by changing your approach, and really by doing what we're doing. Now, one of the easiest ways to find out is go to our website. Uh, go to panx.us, or, or heck, you can email me at info at panx.us, or RJ Burr at panx. Just send one to me directly. Uh, I, I take no issue with it, but you can go to our website. You can download Oil & Gas 101. Oil & Gas 101 just basically gives you the foundation of the oil industry. Oil and Gas 102 gives you the tax side of it. Oil and Gas 103 gives you basically a bird's eye view where we were, where we are, what we believe the future holds. And so it just, I, I want my guys to, this is your money we're talking about. If my partners are not comfortable with who we are or what we're doing, I'll be the first one to tell you, don't do it. Educate yourself, look in research. If you have a question and you don't ask me, shame on you. That's what we're here for. And what it will really boil down to, Donald, there, there are three factors before me and anybody will ever do business. The first factor is solely the partner's responsibility. The remaining two factors are solely my responsibility. The factor that is the partner's, I'm sure you can guess, it's the money. I can't tell a partner how much they have. I can't tell them how much they, invest, they can invest. I can't tell you whether this is something that is comfortable for you. Now, how I kind of put it to you, if you invested with us and the world opened up and swallowed my company and I lost every dime you sent us. Now, that's not to say you won't be upset. I'm, that's not the point of this. However, if that money would change the clothes you wear, the car you drive, or the food you eat, it's not for you. Yeah. If that money is going to be something that costs you sleepless nights, then don't do it. However, if you are in a financial position where you can write a check for 100000 and let me go to work, well, then financially you're a credit and you can handle it. Well, once your financial side is taken care of, now it relies strictly on me. First and foremost, who are we? RJ Burr, Panex, Bob Burr, Justin Burr. Why are we the kind of people that you wanna do business with? If you couldn't envision yourself breaking bread with me and my family, be the first one to tell you, don't do it. Why do business with people you can't feel good about who you're doing business with. If you don't get that warm, fuzzy feeling about who we are, keep your money. Now, once you see that we're the kind of people that you want working for you, economically, what can we do for you? 
of the millions of places on the planet you can place your hard-earned investment money, why is this one of them? What kind of tax benefits are you looking at? What kind of returns are you looking at? What kind of risk are you looking at? Now, when it's all said and done, if you're sitting in a good financial position, you see that we're the kind of people you want to do business with, and my program makes economic sense, we'll do business. Mm -hmm. If there's a negative on any one of those three, and it can take any shape, form, or fashion. It can take, I want to talk to my wife, want to talk to my lawyer, to risk, whatever. It doesn't matter. When you boil it back down, once again, going back to the root simplicity, one of those three factors was negative. And, and so that it's that simple. <clears throat> this is your money we're talking about. You've earned, I work for you. I work for you. I mean, that, that's what a lot of guys in this business, it blows me away. They actually have the audacity to think that the partner works for them. No, nothing could be further from the truth. Without our partners, we don't have a business. Absolutely. And so every, every decision we make and everything we do has one question that is asked before any of them. Is it good for the partners? If it's not good for the partners, we're not going to do it, even if it costs us money. Because like I said, without our partners, and that's where in today, and I, I'm sure you've seen it before. Heck, I went out to a restaurant the other night. And I don't want special treatment. I don't want people bowing down. That's, that's not what this is about. But I went out and we spent, wife, kids, all, we spent $250 on a good meal, you know, steakhouse at all. And it was like I was working for the waitress, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm not, once again, I'm not being a turd. And I know it was Mother's Day and they were slammed. I understand every, everything about that. However, I was blown away with the lack of, of personal service. It was like she was put out that I was there spending money at their restaurant. Well, translate that to the economic world, and you have a lot of people that forget where they came from. They, they forget the fact that when a partner invests with you, when they put their hard-earned money with you and your family, chances are they didn't inherit that money. Chances are they busted their butt. They've worked 60, 70 hours a week. They've missed ball games. Chances are they paid a price to sit in the seat they're sitting in in life. And they chose to hitch their wagon with you. Man, that's sacred. Yeah. That, that's and, something that you don't take for granted. Yeah, And I and, love how you call and, them partners, too. I, I love how you call them posture, partners rather than investors. I love that. Yeah, well, I mean, they are. Because with, yeah. without them, I, I'm partnered up with them. And, yeah. and so without the faith that they have in, in me and my family, we aren't able to do what we do. And so it just, it blows me away when I hear guys that actually have the audacity to get mad at their money, yeah. forget it being the right thing to do, you know, just, just set the moral side of it, just set that aside. Greedy, selfish, economically, what makes more sense? Take care of your partners or take care of yourself? Yeah. So, I mean, so it, it, it's right to do it on the economic side and the moral side. And so I, I kind of look at it like this. At the end of the day, everybody brushes their teeth in the morning. Everybody gets up and shaves that needs to shave. But every morning, you're looking somebody in the mirror eye to eye that you can't lie to. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that cat, if you're happy with who you are and happy with what you're doing, then you're doing it right. If you have trouble looking that guy in the eye, you're doing something wrong. And you need to reevaluate and change because it's hard to lie to yourself. And so that's kind of the barometer I use. I, I, every morning, I have a heart to heart with myself. If you did, did you do the right thing, Jay? Mm. And th I, I'm at the point in my life where that answer is pretty much yes every morning. 
And RJ, quick, can you, um, can you talk about some of the unknown human dependence on oil so people will have a greater understanding of how important oil is currently oh, in our society? Man. You get on the, and this is what shocks people. Just get on the internet and type products created from petroleum. And you'll be shocked. What's roughly 6,000 products can be created from one barrel of oil, from plastics. Pretty much every piece of plastic you out there came from oil. Polyurethane. I mean, just you have the asphalt, your plastics, your your cell phones, your I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, from your tennis shoes to your clothes to your footballs to baseballs to ba I mean, pretty much oil is the center. Petroleum is the center of every world economy. I mean, that that's the we can uh, like I said, we can get we can get, try to get complicated and and talk about this, that, and the other. But the bottom line of it is, until a country has a modern energy structure, until the country is not trying to figure out how they're going to keep their lights on, mm -hmm. they can't be a first world mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. That has to be the key. Now, you look at, and, and I don't want to, I'm in no way wanting to attack environmentalists. That's, I believe all of us have a little environmentalist in us. I, I want a clean, pristine area. I, I don't want any pollution around me. And so that, however, what I want and what is are, are two completely different things. And, and when you look at the push to green energy, well, I really don't want to question anybody's motives. But the fact of the matter is, if environmental, clean, renewable energy was their goal, well, they'd study natural gas or nuclear. That's where they would point to, because those mm -hmm. are the cleanest burning energies we have. Mm -hmm. Yet nobody is. So that tells me that that might not be their goal, mm -hmm. because if you if you were if you were, that's the direction you would point. They've been studying solar panels. They discovered the first one over 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. You mean to tell me they hadn't figured it out in 150 years? I mean, I, I remember seeing cartoons of, of Holland and the windmills in Holland a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. And that and that's what they're trying to replace oil with. No, if somebody had figured out how to do that, they'd have already done it. I mean, th think of it this way. Take the most modern solar panel on the planet today. If we use that solar panel, it would take a solar farm the size of New Jersey. And it would require the sun to shine 24 hours a day, 365 days a year at Arizona summertime intensity. That's how much it would take. And that's not even talking about the material requirements to build that solar farm. But that's how much the sun would have to shine to create the energy that we consume as a country. It's just not there. You, you just, there's, you know, and then, I mean, to make a Tesla battery, you have to move half a million pounds of raw material to make one battery. Well, man, if we go green with the technologies we have now, talk about rape and pillaging the earth like never before. We ain't seen nothing yet. If that's where we're going. And so, you know, you don't want to be a, a Debbie Downer. You don't want to be a naysayer. But, but the fact of the matter is we're, we're not paying attention to reality when, when it comes to, to our energy. And, man, it, it, if people don't snap to it real quick, it's going to be painful for everybody. I mean, because it, it affects everything we do. From what you pay at the pump to what you pay for your shirt to what you pay. Where do you think? How do you think they get the food to the grocery stores? 
If it costs a truck driver 3X to drive his truck those miles, what do you think that's going to do to your price of a loaf of bread? Mm. You know, and, and so it's just uh, people get overwhelmed with so much stuff. And I, I have to think it's intentional. They overwhelm you with so many things to worry about that you lose sight of the forest because of the trees. You know, RJ, RJ, what do you think? What do you think the um, the government could be doing to make the situation better energy wise? Get out of the way, America. Get get out of the way. You name, I'll put it to you. Okay, going back to history, name one government program that from day one when the government got involved to day five million, whatever the end point is, that. From day one to that end day, wasn't worse. When the government got involved, it was a five. Now it's a 10. Well, did the same person run each one of those operations? No. So either one of two things, I'm, a, I'm an Occam's razor guy. You know, the simplest explanation is most likely the accurate one. And so one of two things happened there. Either everybody they put in charge of those programs was an imbecile and didn't know how to run it and therefore made the problem worse or it was intentional. One of the two, it can't be both. You, you can't have, you know, once again, I forget, I don't care about your intentions. I want the results. How did it actually work? Look at the drug war. Look at the war on poverty. Look at the war on hunger. Look at, the, look at all of it. You mean to tell me we live in America and we actually have a portion of our society that is hungry? No, it's crazy. It's crazy. That shouldn't be there. There is no way that should be happening. I mean, you look at the the 40 billion they passed last night to send to Ukraine. I feel bad for Ukraine. Don't get me wrong. I, I feel bad for everybody else. But honestly, why is that our responsibility? You know, I, I believe if Europe has a little more direct hand, they're a little more in danger. Yeah. Why aren't they stepping up? How? Why do we have to be the ones that save the planet. I'm not saying be naive. I'm not saying block or board. I'm not saying any of that. You help where help is needed. However, if your house is built on a shaky foundation, there's no way you can build extra stories on that house, which is exactly what we're doing. We've got to shore up our foundation first. Then we can help everybody else. We're the most generous people the world has ever known. Look at the charitable work. I mean, just look at the hearts of Americans. I mean, it, we are, it, it, without a doubt, no question in my mind. If you needed a shirt, I'd give you my shirt. And I can probably name 100 people here in Bowling Green that would do it without hesitation. However, if we're not whole, how can we help anybody else? And, and so you just got to eventually, it, it's, not, it's not selfishness, it's self-interest. If you don't take care of yourself, you cannot take care of anybody else. And right now, we're not taking care of ourselves. And when the, I hate to say it, but when the world kills the golden goose, there are no more golden eggs. And so if all these other countries like the U.S. helping them, they like our monetary assistance, they like our military assistance, by God, you need to have some skin in the game too. How many times have you ever seen somebody who had nothing at stake give you their best effort? doesn't happen yeah. you know there there's not much altruism on the planet everybody likes to say there is i really don't there's everybody does something for a reason 
And if you have nothing at risk, you're not, heck, if I don't, if it doesn't make a difference to me, I'm not even really going to pay attention to it. When do I pay attention to it? When it makes a difference to me. When it personally affects me is when I'm going to give you everything I have. Yeah. You know, and, and so when you ask people, well, go back to Milton Friedman. I can spend somebody else's money on somebody else. And when I spend somebody else's money on somebody else, it doesn't really matter to me how much it costs. It doesn't really matter to me how much I get for it. I'm spending somebody else's money on somebody else. It, it, it's just one of those that, uh, you know, I, I look at, uh, now you kind of, we're, we're getting into conspiracy areas and you're not, not conspiracies because it's really, you, you just look at it and once again, history tells you what's going on. And you look at, uh, oh, we were talking about government programs. And you look at uh, just the fact that every time, <laughs> you know, every every time y'all got involved, something something got screwed up. And, and the bottom line of it is, it's because they have no skin in the game. It, it doesn't affect them. It, going back to Milton Freeman's quote, it it's not their money and they're spending it on somebody else. And, and so, therefore, they have no emotional tie to that money. If you have $10 in your account and somebody wants nine of it and you don't know what that nine is going for, you're going to have issues. You want to get that nine as close to zero as you can. Why? Because you only got $10 in your account. Mm -hmm. And so when, when, and that's exactly what governments have done worldwide. I mean, you look at Europe. We've essentially funded Europe for how long now? How many countries have we basically funded and mm -hmm. kept them going? You look at Ukraine. Once again, I feel bad for the people, but Ukraine is one of the most resource-rich countries on the planet. Why haven't you developed your infrastructure? Why haven't you developed your weapons? And I understand NATO. And no, you, you knew darn good and well going in that Russia was not going to allow a country bordering it to join NATO and allow yeah. American nukes on their border. Yeah. That, that's something even I wouldn't done. That'd be like Mexico nuking up with Chinese missiles. Right. Think yeah, we'd you, be happy. Yeah, U.S. wouldn't have that either. happy with that? Right, exactly. You know? Yeah. And, and so I kind of look at it and I said, look, I'm sorry, but you guys have been fighting for decades. I mean, the, I, once again, don't take my word for it. Google Ukraine-Russia war. It goes back a couple hundred years they've been fighting. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you look at the Middle East. They've been fighting for how long? As long as anybody, any of yeah. us have seen, right. you know? Yeah. And, and so who are we to think that we're going to go in there and pose our values on them and, and change? No, they haven't been able to change that for years. Now, I, I, once again, I feel bad for the innocent people. I feel bad for the citizens, but eventually they've either got to stand up and fight it themselves or they're going to stay in the same same realm. I kind of look at is uh, Jay, you know, Jay's foreign policy. I look at all the <laughs> other countries, and while I feel bad, you know, take a third world dictator. Hey, you treat your people however you want to treat them. If they revolt against you and all that, that that's your fault. However, mm -hmm. you mess with us, you take down one American plane, you, you hit us with a terrorist attack, we're going to take out your capital. We'll send leaflets mm -hmm. over, we'll let everybody get out of there. But we're going to bomb your capital back to the Stone Age. Mm -hmm. And then 
Once you rebuild, we're not going to rebuild it for you like we did Europe after World War II. Once you rebuild, then we'll let you back into the community worlds if you want to be and you want to act civilly. You hit us again, we're going to take out your second city. While it's cruel and ruthless and people don't like to talk like that, what is the definition of war? To break somebody else's will from fighting you. How do you do that? Do you do that by babying them and hugging them and kissing them and being nice? No, you, no. you break their will by being ruthless and brutal. And yeah, it's war. War is hell. Yeah. Look at some of the, uh, somebody sent me a picture the other day of a young infantryman who went off in 1941 to fight in the war. And they showed a picture of him in 1941 contrasted with the picture of him in 1945. Yeah, he was haunted. That man had been through hell. You can, you can even look at the picture and know that he saw some things that human eyes should not see. Mm -hmm. That's what war is. Yeah. And the only way to end war, look, once again, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to sound like y'all, a big Billy bad American. No. No, but I would much rather the world be afraid of us than worry about them liking us. Mm. Really don't care if you like me or not. Don't mess with us. If we can help you, we'll help you. If you want to be a partner, if you want to be an, hey, great, act right. But if you don't, don't dare impose on us because we are the greatest force for good the world's ever known. Mm. We have done more. Hey, how many Americans died in the Civil War? We killed ourselves to right a wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, you, if you don't want to look at that, then that's fine. But you're just ignoring a piece of history. You know, that's what we did. Now, is everything great? No. But there was only one perfect man. We nailed him to a cross. Mm -hmm. All you can do is work to get better. All you can do is try to be better today than you were yesterday. And, and so you just keep moving forward. Keep doing the right thing. Help people when help is needed. But if you, you know, once again, an old saying, you teach a man to fish, you feed him for life. Mm. You know, and right now we're just giving fish away left and right. And we've been doing it for decades. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the, whether they wanted the military industrial complex, whether it's all, all cards of the same deck. You know, as long as they can keep us spending money, they can keep making money. Mm -hmm. And so you, you hate to say it, but follow the money. Yeah. You want all the answers to all the world's problems, follow the money. And it's, it's really that simple. But I'll get off my soapbox. That's about the, that. That's Jay's philosophy in a, in a nutshell. Oh, good stuff. So, and before, so before we hop off, let's do a few lightning round questions. All righty. All right. So RJ, if you could have a billboard anywhere, with anything on it, what would it say? The first key to success is work ethic. Mm, love it, love it. Okay, and um, what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Think and Grow Rich and Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged, okay. Yeah, that was one of my favorite ones, Atlas Shrugged. That was an excellent one, okay. Love that one. All right, and if, um, how has a first a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Uh, I, I'm an old jock and, and I kind of look at it as you don't learn anything from beating somebody 30 to nothing. Mm -hmm. You learn something when you lose 10, nine. Mm -hmm. and, and so I remember I was, uh, 
in my mid twenties was newly married. I think, uh, I think we had two kids at that point in time. And, and I jumped into the house building world. Now I'm an oil guy. I've never, never built a house before. Never, you know, done anything in that realm and went sideways. Yada, yada, long story short, I lost about, Oh, about 20, 25 grand is what I lost. Well, at that point in time, that was a lot of money. I mean, that, that gutted me. And I went over to my brother-in-law's house afterwards and uh, him and a fellow named Jerry McKinney were sitting out in the backyard drinking a, drinking a beer. And Jerry, at one point in time, was the number one Oldsmobile salesman in the country. And he was based in Bowling Green, Kentucky. How that happened, I still don't know. And Mr. McKinney passed away here a handful of years ago. So I never did get the answer to that question. But uh, he was a very successful guy. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm mad. I could, I would have, could have bit through nails at that point in time. I walked in, I'm fired up and I, I'm, I'm bitching and I tell him what happens. And Jerry looks at me. He says, Jay, I'm going to tell you something that I'm sure your dad would say, but uh, every successful man has lost money before. The question is, do you lose money the same way twice? Learn from it, put it in your book of knowledge and move on. That's what failure teaches you. So, yes, yeah, almost a requirement for success, right? Yeah. I mean, the light bulb wasn't invented on the first try. All right. Very good. Good stuff. And what is a habit or routine that you really like or love? A habit or routine? Mm. Every morning I sit down. And I make out my list and I have my, I preach it to my kids, control what you can control. Everything in your life, there's enough random events that you have to deal with. There's enough things that impromptu just pop up that you have to deal with. There are certain things that you can control. Well, control what you can control and everything else will take care of itself. And so every morning I'll sit down and I make out a list of everything I can control and the items in my mind that I can't control. Take those items I can't control and I set them aside. I let God deal with those. I take care of the ones I can control. All right, excellent. All right, and last one. What, what have you become better at saying no to? Better at saying no to? Darn sure not my daughters. I'm horrible about that. They <laughs> own me. Yeah, I um, too. You know, I, I really, it, maybe it's not necessarily a no, but I'm not impressed by the BS anymore. As a young man, you would hear somebody talk in big flowery words and they would get in depth on a conversation and they would get out in the stratosphere and they'd jump all around and all of a sudden they'd come back to a point and you'd be mesmerized by the picture they painted. Well, as an adult, you look at that picture and realize that 98% of it is whipped cream. The real substance is about 5%. And so as that, that's where I've gotten better at saying, no, no, I don't want to listen to your fluff. Get to the point. <laughs> Let me know what you want and why I should do it or why I shouldn't do it. And then I'll make my own decision. Love it. Love it. All right. Good stuff, RJ. So um, before we hop off, 
if anybody wants to get in touch with you, collaborate, um, partner with you, what's the best way for them? How, how can they find you? Oh, perfect. Go to, go to panx.us. That's our website. Mm -hmm. And there's a little section in there where you can uh, sign up for the oil and gas 101. If you want to email in, info, info at panx, that's P-A-N-E-X dot U-S. We're not a dot com. We're a U.S. company. And so that, that was kind of why we did that dot U.S. And uh, you, not, you can email me directly, rjbar at panx.us. It's uh, whatever's easier for you. And like I was saying earlier, it, this is not, uh, I don't twist your arm. I don't yank your hair. I'm not going to push you through a door you don't want to go through. This is your money you're talk, we're talking about. And, and unless you're 100% comfortable with who we are, what we're doing, don't even contemplate it. Make sure we're the kind of people you want to do business with. Then we'll talk about what we can do financially. But do your research, kick the tires, test drive the car. Make sure we're the kind of people that you want to go to dinner with. All right, good stuff, good stuff. All right, Audrey, thanks for giving us your time today. Really enjoyed this. I'm sure the uh, listeners will as well. Oh, no no problem at all, Donna. If you ever need anything, I'm right here. I'm one phone call away. All right, sounds good, buddy. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right, have a good one. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the Books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.